Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, in a special way, on this day, set our hearts and our minds upon the incarnation of your only begotten. God from God, light from light, became one of us, and not a projection but us in the flesh, Lord, and dwelt among us that he may redeem us. And we thank you that you have accomplished all of this in your son. We thank you for the wonder of your genius born out in God become man. A plan that no man could have conceived of and a design which no man can discern. But help us glean the little that we may, that we may behold you in awesome wonder. I pray that you give us grace in this time. I pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray at this Christmas Eve that those who are here who do not know you would come to know you. And that this would be the time when they can remember meeting God for the first time, henceforth. I pray that you give me great grace. I pray that you give your people great grace, Lord, as we seek to discern wonderful things from your word. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch our keeping. This Christmas Eve, Lord's Day, I'd like to do something different with you than I have done in the past, in previous years. I have told you the Christmas story at this time of year, either from Luke 2 or from one of the other synoptic gospels. And I'm going to do this again and again, many more times in my ministry, should the Lord tarry. Because the account of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in a manger cannot ever become old, not at least in a bad way. The story of Bethlehem is indeed old to us, but old in the fond and familiar way, that way which kindles old comforts with each telling. And so as Christians, we never object to its retelling. This year, though, I'd like to tell you the story of the Incarnation itself. With less emphasis upon the whens and the wheres and more upon the whats, hows, whys, And to what end? And although we will move through this story as one typically does, that being from the beginning to the end, this will also be a theological and anthropological assessment of that question from the famous Athor quoted from him, what child is this? Which in this case, with this particular child, requires a knowledge of his backstory prior to being laid to rest on Mary's lap and sleeping. And that is, of course, because he has a backstory prior to birth. And indeed, it is sweeping and grand beyond our capacity to even fully grasp. He alone in the history of the human race did not merely begin in the womb, nor in fact did he have a beginning at all. He is of eternity. And that is, in fact, where our story begins. Because we cannot know the child if we do not know the God who became the child. And God, indeed, he was. And to this end, 
John chapter 1 is where we start. And we're going to jump right in here. Note first, before I explain anything else to you, that the Word, who is as yet undefined by me, is identified as having become incarnate in verse 14. Verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then in verse 15, the Word is identified as the one of whom the Baptist, John, testified. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And from here, Jesus is named explicitly and recognized as having exegeted or explained the Father, and the Greek root of this is exegomai, Verses 17 through 18, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And there is that word, exegomai. So the God who has no material form to see has had the form of his invisible nature exegeted by the word who was made flesh, that is to say, human. But having gained this certain knowledge that the word is, in fact, Jesus, who became flesh in verse 14, and therefore was, of course, that child laid to rest on Mary's lap, we are going to work through the first four verses which describe and define him, pausing as is necessary to explain. And we will see that the word is, in the open of John 1, seen standing face to face with the Father as his equal. Thus he is able to explain him because he himself is consubstantial to him. John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word. That is literally when the beginning began. And so then it does not speak to the word merely being there at the beginning of all things, but prior to all things, pre-existing, everything. And as to the state of the word in that space before time, the apostle speaks later in verse 18 of this. And he says there, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God begotten there meaning set apart or specially anointed, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now let me give you a point of order here, which is obvious, but nevertheless, I think needs to be stated. The Father is immaterial, has no literal bosom. So this is not a reference that conveys physical location or position that the word had relative to the Father, but rather a relationship and that of the most intimate kind. And this is evident by the posture of these two beings. And we ought to be able to understand the distinction between kinds of contact relative to this. For example, a hand may be extended in mercy to the needy that you do not know and a shoulder to the needy that you do know. But the bosom, well, that's reserved exclusively for the most intimate kinds of relationships that that a parent might have with a child, husband might have with a wife, or in the case of Jesus, also the disciple whom he loved, as was the case in the upper room with our author. But eternities before John the Apostle would ever lay his head upon the bosom of the Lord Jesus, and eternities before the Lord Jesus would ever nurse from the bosom of Mary, lay the word in the Father's bosom, beloved of him, never needing, never lacking, never wanting, because continuing in verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God cannot need. I hear, though, is a point that will increasingly become very much relevant to us, and that is that whatever is understood about the Word, He is all things that God is. He is no less than God is. He is possessor and origin of all power, of all knowledge, of all that makes God uniquely God. And I want you to hold on to that, but look now to verses 2 through 4. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the word here is cast as creator, as the source of all physical life. Same is true, of course, of all spiritual life as well, but the reference here pertains to physical life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, all that said, given that the Word is all that God is, and given that we are not polytheists, the Word of God, 
is the word who is God. And with this understood, let's step back for a moment and explain something about what the name, the title, word, means, what it carries with it. Because as yet, we have not addressed this. And before I say anything about this at all, I want you to understand that whole sermons and whole sermon series have been and should be devoted to this. I have done this in the past. But for our purposes today, this is going to be brief. And I will accomplish this brevity by emphasizing certain aspects over others in pursuit of establishing what is my thesis. And that is, again, answering that question, what child is this? So briefly, word is logos. Logos has a rich tradition in Greek thought and philosophy, and that is being invoked here. This is sort of, for them, an overarching organizing principle for the universe and reality itself. It is logic. It is rationality. All of that is true. And all of that is being invoked by the Apostle John here. But this concept, Word of God, Logos Tautheo, also has a rich tradition in the Old Testament Hebrew canon, which is consistent with its Greek uses. And it helps us understand the active nature of God's word. And this is in Hebrew, Debar Yahweh, word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is very active in the Old Testament, isn't it? You see it everywhere, doing and moving and leading and calling and causing and, yes, creating. In other words, the word of God is not only logical, it is active in the application and in the ordering of all things. But while all of those activities performed by the Word can be ascribed to all three persons of the Trinity and must, they are uniquely applied to the second person who is the Word and is also, according to John 1, verse 49, the eternal Son as well, as acknowledged there by Nathaniel. And to think of the Son as Creator in His unique way amongst the persons of the Godhead per the testimony of Scripture is to effectively recognize Him as the hands of God. Father is the administrator of creation and indeed salvation. But the administration of his divine will is invisible, though manifesting visibly. Spirit's implementation of the Father's will is most often internal. But when God is manifest visibly or audibly, depending upon the nature of the manifestation, this is almost always the Son. Because again, the Word is active, doing, moving, leading, calling, causing, and creating. And this is because this making the unseen God seen as occurs in the incarnation and as is referenced in verse 18 is not an action in isolation for the word who is the son. Surely it is an action born of the son's personality. Three persons of the Trinity means three personalities. And though you should not reduce this to being understood in terms of your own experience, it is similar to you. Your personality leads you to perform certain actions, and there are actions that are more consistent with your personality. And so there is a form of this at work in God. And this means that as it is most consistent with the person of the Father to administrate, therefore he is the sender of both Son and Spirit. And as it is most consistent with the person of the Spirit to reveal the Son, Ergo, he is the other helper sent out by Father and Son for this purpose. It is most consistent with the nature of the Son's personality to manifest on behalf of God visibly and audibly. Thus, he leads in this. And so we know per John's words that no one has seen God, but that it is the function of the Word who is the Son to reveal him. So knowing this, this truth should be recognized by us to serve as a sort of rubric by which we understand Old Covenant divine appearances in general, such that as God is revealed in the Old Testament, we must understand the Son to be the one doing the revealing. And his appearances, of course, have names. One of them is theophany. It's derived from two Greek words, theo meaning God, and then the latter half of that is what we get epiphany from, the English term, meaning to bring to light or to show and since the Father does not do this, according to John, and the Son does, this means that he who said, before Abraham was, I am, is the same that said that he was the great I am to Abraham. Based upon John 1, Adam walked in the cool of the day with the manifest Son. Jacob wrestled with the manifest Son. Pre-incarnate Son appeared to Abram. 
and then again to him when he was Abraham. The word who is the son spoke words to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And given that Christ is called the spiritual rock who followed and sustained the ancient Israelites by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, and given the truths that we are applying, the pillar of smoke and fire, they were the sun manifesting as well. And the angel of the Lord who was worshipped as Lord or identified as him in all instances is the sun. And the occasion with Jacob has already been referenced, but you can add Hagar's visitation and Gideon's as well. But understand that when we get to the incarnation of the eternal son, while incarnation is certainly entirely different than Theophanies or Christophanies more narrowly, you should expect that none other than the son would enter his own creation this way. Because again, this is in consonance with his personality, as it is not with either the first person of the Trinity or the third. The incarnation is for the son a radical change in means. It is not a change in general approach. This is how he, as Elohim, is connected to his own creation. He has been condescending to walk amongst men since Adam in Eden. Now what changes in the incarnation is that he walks amongst the children of men as one of us. So all of that brings us to the event itself, which we will observe in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now, what I would like to do from here is give you the theological and anthropological explanation of what has occurred here. Theological meaning things that pertain to God, anthropological meaning things that pertain to man, and how those two are united in the God-man Jesus. Again, this is the story of the incarnation rather than the story of Bethlehem. And this first and primary leg is going to take some time. But after we have accomplished this, we're going to address what I believe to be the primary purpose and aim of the incarnation in conclusion. Let me say here, my purpose is not to overwhelm you. Okay? Let me also, though, follow that with, this is going to be one of the most dense sermons I have ever delivered. So glean from this what you can. And if you're unable to stay with all of it, you're not going to be the only one. That's the way that we humans work. If I were listening to this, I wouldn't be able to stay with all of it. Because what happens, especially when you're a Christian and you're considering something as wonderful as this and something that thrills your soul as this does, you'll grab on to a piece that's given and your mind will follow that for another 35, 45 seconds. And then you'll have to find your way back to what the preacher is saying. That's understandable. That is okay. These are recorded. But please don't get discouraged. Get what you can, and then you can go back afterwards if you need to. Having said that, though, what follows is a series of true statements that I hope are logically ordered. And these concern the union of God and man as uniquely occurred in Jesus. And the first of these is this. Jesus is one person with two natures. Jesus is one person with two natures. And before we really get into this, let me say that we should all be very, very grateful for the faithful defense of this and all that comes with it by our forefathers in the faith. This is the doctrine of the hypostatic union, 
which is a term and concept formulated by the church to describe the absolutely unique to Jesus condition of two natures being in one person. And this has been established and preserved through much work from stalwart Christian leaders who stood fast against many satanic attacks in many generations in order to deliver to we, their spiritual children, an intact Christ who can actually save. To give you an idea of the number of attacks that our spiritual predecessors have had to stave off in order to deliver this intact to us, let me give you the names of the various different and distinct heresies that they had to put down. And you'll learn something just from the sheer volume of these. You ready? Although it's more important that I be ready so that I can actually pronounce these. Here we go. Ebionism, Gnosticism, Adoptionism slash Modalism, Docetism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and Monothelitism. For three and a half centuries, the church was in the trenches fighting against these heresies all the way from Nicaea in the fourth century to the Third Council of Constantinople ending in 681. But the clearest and most succinct statement on the truth of these two natures comes from Council of Chalcedon in 451, and I will begin by reading this to you now. Council concluded the following. Following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earlier times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Now, you got all that, didn't you? That's okay, because we're going to spend the rest of the time effectively filling that out and filling that in. There is so much wisdom in that. But to start, I want you to consider the statement, truly God or truly man, or vera homo, vera deus. Now, I don't want to be like that English teacher that you know who is so pedantic you can't even have a conversation with him and her because they are forever correcting your grammar for every little issue. But, you could feel that coming on, that is how that needs to be phrased. Okay, definitions matter. The words you use matter. Phrasing matters, especially when you're talking about the person of God and fully God and fully man is an illogical category error, as is 100% God and 100% man. These denote volume. Okay, You can't have 100% of two things in the same thing, right? Logically, that doesn't work. So it's a little bit like metaphors for the Trinity then. But instead of being led into heresy, we are led into irrationality and logical inconsistency, which we should also seek to avoid. Our wise spiritual ancestors recognized this and thoughtfully delivered this phrasing to us, and we should use it. Truly God, truly man. But the dual natures of Christ, his true humanity and true deity, need to be recognized and defended to the utmost, because if either is lost, then he cannot save. Got to be man or he cannot die, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, and he must be God because only God can satisfy the infinite wrath of God being himself infinite. And there is much more that is critical to this doctrine besides these things. It suffice to say for now that only God and man can be our savior. So both of these natures must be affirmed and preserved. But understand that in order for Christ to have two natures, one truly divine and the other truly human, there can be no communication 
of the nature of the human to the divine, nor the other way around. Apart from this being understood, there is no true humanity or divinity. And that was raised in that statement from the council that I read to you, and for a good reason. So to work through this with you, though, can a human being be infinite by his nature, or is that something that we cannot be by our natures? We cannot be that. So we cannot be omnipresent. We cannot be omnipotent. If we do take on qualities such as these, qualities consistent with infinitude, we become something more than human, which is to say not human. Conversely, God is infinite. And so to sacrifice this in order to accommodate or assimilate the finitude of man would render him no longer God. So there can be no communication of attributes, either from the nature of God to man or from man to God. Lutherans, for example, get turned around on this. They say that the physical form of Christ in heaven at present is ubiquitous. Not only is that irrational, it's also inconsistent with the nature of human beings. And to adopt this would annul the true humanity of Jesus, which we still need preserved and intact because he is at present our great high priest. And that requires that he be like us. Yet this is not to say that the human nature of Jesus gains nothing in any sense from the divine, nor even that it did not gain greatly during the life and ministry of Jesus. John Frame frames this thought wonderfully as he writes, quote, Was Jesus' human nature affected by his divine nature? Of course. If you and I were living in uninterrupted fellowship with God, as were Adam and Eve in the garden, every moment of our existence would be dominated by God. We would constantly be seeking to please him. So did Jesus. His humanity was a perfectly faithful humanity, unlike any other human life since the fall. End quote. Not to put too fine a point on it, but to put my own point on it, a human nature living in the full and unfailing light of the divine nature within the same person every moment of every day cannot but be affected by that. And to profound extent, obviously. However, not in a way that changes the nature of his humanity. Because again, no attributes were communicated. Surely the divine light being that close and that bright affected Christ's humanity deeply. And to help bring this home to you, consider that a form of this is coming in your future. The best of your humanity is yet to come. Friend, you have not yet begun to practice this. It is coming in heaven because it is there that you will be the closest to God. The divine presence not being muted in your experience by the veil of your sin. That is the state that we were created for. And for you and I, it's very difficult for us to think outside of the box of this sin-cursed world. But we must. Because sin in our race and in this world exists because of us. But it is not inerrant to our humanity. We pre-exist sin. So this present life is not the fullness of our human experience. It is a vastly, vastly diminished experience of it. So simply put, sin is not inherently human. In fact, because we are image bearers of a holy God, it is subhuman. But to connect this back to the true humanity of Jesus, as it is true to say that the truest experience of your humanity will be experienced when you have the fullest access to the presence of God, it is also therefore true to say that the person who possessed the truest humanity in this life was Jesus. This is not an illegitimate or artificial form because he's God, because the true nature of his manhood was living in that kind of fellowship with the nature of God. He experienced humanity in the greatest way anybody ever has. Because our humanity was created to grow in that light. And the more of that light you give to us, the more human we are. You can use the example of the sunflowers in my garden that I grow. It is strange to come out in the morning and see their heads face the sun and then to come out in late afternoon and see that they have actually turned following the rotation of the sun in the sky. And so our natures require 
that light from God. Uh, you and I are, by comparison to Adam, and especially to Jesus, very much growing in the shade. The effect is still true. Though this was active in the person of Jesus uniquely, the concept is still binding upon us all. But did this effect of one nature to another go the other way, from humanity to deity? No, it did not. Not at least if you're using effect as a concept. And Frame also acknowledges this. Effect denotes change, and God is eternally unchanged. The Son learned nothing from the human nature of Jesus. Nothing was transferred to him. But while the Son's nature was not changed by Jesus' human nature, God is pleased with man's obedience. And so, because Jesus was the most obedient man and perfectly Obedient, that means God was never more pleased than he was with Jesus, which means that the nature of the Son was very pleased with the nature of man in Christ. Now, one final point on this. Whatever the singular person of Jesus has accomplished can be ascribed to either of his two natures, because in his person, he is both of these. So when you read statements as follows that are written, in the word and that are perhaps said by me at times, you should understand that they are not false. They are not unorthodox. Paul said this, and he was not wrong. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Now, the blood was obviously shed by Jesus' human body, consistent with his human nature, and yet because his singular person is rightly defined as the God-man, that act may also be attributed to God as well, because he is God and he is man. Now, though, that we have established the two natures, I want to hone in on that human one. And so the next true statement that I have for all of you is, the human nature of Jesus is real, and it had to be. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he did not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he also suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. Now, many through the ages have attempted to preserve the deity of Christ by diminishing his humanity. But as the author of Hebrews states, if not a true man, and Jesus is neither able to be the savior of man nor the sacrifice given on behalf of men. And so he is made in his brother, made like his brothers in all things. And who are his brothers? It'd be you and me. That'd be we fellow humans. And the reality of Jesus' true humanity is seen in his very normal birth. And as I say normal, you may take umbrage with that. You may say, how dare you say the birth of our Lord Jesus was normal? Well, I say it because it was. It's very important to acknowledge that it was. In Matthew 1.25, when she, Mary, gave birth to a son, that was exactly the same biological process by which we all entered the world. Mary didn't give birth to a spirit or anything else. She gave birth to a squirming, perhaps red-in-the-cheeks little boy. Case in point. And because this is true, this means that the man on the cross bled and the man risen from the cross ate because the baby born of Mary was actually born in the normal way. Now, what wasn't normal at all and what bears heavily upon the issue of Christ's humanity and the nature of it was his conception. This was entirely unique amongst our race, and we will consider the implications of this now. Jesus had no earthly human father. Back to Matthew 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Later, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, in her rather is of the Holy Spirit. Later still, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, and for the sake of absolute certainty to the means by which she was pregnant. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. It is through this that Jesus is kept without sin. And despite what I was raised to believe, it would seem that the issue is less that the presence of sinful man is absent in the conception and more the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in conception, given that the contribution of the sinful woman is still present. The means of this seems to be revealed in Luke one thirty-five, as it was there in the Holy Spirit's working in Matthew. But I'll read that to you. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. She is pregnant of the Holy Spirit. And by this power, Jesus is mystically kept from inheriting the sins of his mother or her forefathers and mothers given in Matthew's genealogy. But to help you understand how critical this issue of Christ's true humanity is, here is the Apostle John speaking of this unambiguously. 1 John 4, 2 through 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Because our salvation depends upon this, and also because it is an egregious blasphemy to malign the nature of Jesus, a denial of this is also a denial of our faith entirely. Where there is a denial of Christ's true humanity, there is no salvation, there is no Christianity. Now, before I close this point, I do want to mention and refute a common and misguided attempt to preserve the true humanity of Jesus by claiming that while he did not sin, he could have. This is a very old debate and one that is had by genuine believers on both sides, but there is a right and a wrong answer to this as to whether or not Jesus could have sinned. And the reason I raise this here is because most of the answers to this are tied to truths revealed in the doctrine of the Incarnation, which we are discussing. This is a question, though, of what is called peccability or ability to sin, able to sin, or impeccability, meaning unable to sin. And in my view, and in fact the majority view, Jesus was, during his mortal life, unquestionably unable to sin, and gloriously so. And I will explain this to you now point by point, though I won't give you all points. And I'm going to beg your forgiveness ahead of time because I'm going to do this much faster than I would like to be doing it. But you're already drinking from a fire hose, so may as well lean into it at this point. Okay? First, given that the two natures make up the singular person of Christ and that the divine nature cannot sin, then Jesus clearly cannot sin because Jesus is man and God. As the statement there states from Chalcedon, you can't separate these things that way. He is God and God cannot sin, therefore he cannot sin. Next, think about the decrees of God. Who's the good Calvinist anywhere, ever, that thinks that Judas couldn't have uh, or could have broken away from the path that God had foreordained from him? Given that that was prophesied in Scripture, Judas was going to do what he did to precipitate the events of the cross. But we're going to say that Jesus could have potentially, even as a potentiality, forsaken the path that God had ordained for him, not on your life. Uh, finally, I want you to consider the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was carried along by the Spirit in his humiliated state in an absolutely unique and distinct way. And the Spirit cannot fail. And the New Testament testifies to this abundantly, ascribing to the Spirit his conception and baptism and upholding him 
in his temptation in the desert and with his speech and miracles of all sorts. But I want you to consider the words of Isaiah on this. Isaiah 11, 2 through 3, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, meaning Jesus. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. Again, the spirit is with him. And in a way and to an end that he is not and has never been with anybody else. Think of it this way, Christian. Father has made you a promise, glorious promise, which he is going to keep. And he is going to keep this promise by sealing you by the Spirit until the day of redemption. Promise is this. He has broken the dominion of sin. He will not deliver you back over to it. But you will be saved through the presence of sin until he saves you from the presence of sin altogether in glorification. That is the promise of God to you. I know whom I have believed that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. It will be done. That is not the same promise that he gave to the son that was going to be fulfilled by that same spirit. The father's promise to the son incarnate is as follows, but written in the first person as though it were spoken of the incarnate son himself. Isaiah 61, one through three. The spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness built upon his righteousness, the planting of Yahweh that he may show forth his beautiful glory. The promise of the Father to us in this life is to save us from our sin and through our remaining sin, even as Christians. The promise of the Father to the Son is to accomplish our salvation by preserving his sinlessness through the Spirit which does not negate his volitional obedience to the will of God. But we must also not negate the helping role of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus, which is what you are doing if you say that the Holy Spirit would have let him sin. Not a chance. Will not let your salvation fail. Would not let your salvation fail by letting his impeccability fail. Now we have arrived at that final true statement that I have for you concerning the unique union of God and man in Jesus. And that is that the nature of the eternal son remained and remains unchanged and intact. And obviously I've interacted with this somewhat, but I'll address what remains of what is most germane to this issue in light of Philippians 2, 7. And I'm gonna read Philippians though 2, 5 through 7 for the sake of context. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, the word there is kino, by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. And because emptied in Greek is kino, this emptying is called kinosis. And the right way to think about this is as subtraction, but not subtraction by subtraction, but rather as subtraction by addition. In order to be made in the likeness of men and experience that humanity truly, such that he is able to be our sympathetic high priest, Jesus had to know what it was to, for example, not know at times. Now, God knows all things at all times, but inerrant to humanity is uncertainty. And you can see times when this was the case in Scripture. Mark 13, son didn't know the day or the hour. And yet there were also very clearly times when the son did know all things. John 2, when he rejects the spurious faith of false professors because he knew what was in man, all that was in man. So kenosis is properly understood as the voluntary and temporary setting aside of the full use of the divine attributes. And I say full use of. I do not say the setting aside of the attributes themselves. Those were always there and they always remained. Obviously, if the divine nature was somehow gone during Christ's earthly ministry, 
he would never have been able to exhibit omniscience, yet at times he clearly did. And there is the revelation of his glory at the transubstantiation. How does that happen if the glory is not there? He is able to peel back his humanity and reveal his deity because it is always there, it is always with him. And I'll also say that the limiting effect of this kenosis was also temporary based upon Romans 1, 3, and 4. Concerning his son, father, son, Jesus, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was designated as the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So at the incarnation, Jesus voluntarily set aside the full use of his deity, but at the resurrection, he took it all back. Now, please forgive me for the amount of information that I have keynoted onto all of you. I have only one more point, and it's a glorious one, and I need you to stay with me for this, okay? And it concerns the great why of the incarnation. And I say the great why because there are many whys which I cannot address now. But I do wish to leave you with the one that I believe to be preeminent. And this is that the word became flesh to become our atonement. And this is supported in so many places in scripture. But I want you to consider Hebrews 10, 4 through 7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. When I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, there is but one phrase from that that I wish to parse with you now. And it is sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and especially the latter half of that. But a body you have prepared for me. And we will do this through a series of simple questions. Who is the me who has had a body prepared for him? Me is the he of verse 5 who came into the world. And who is the you who prepared the body? Quite evidently, the you is the father. Finally, in context, what has the body of the Son being prepared by the Father for. That would be sacrifice, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A lamb was prepared instead, but not in the way that the ram caught in the thicket was prepared as a substitution for Isaac. This is the Lamb of God, who God prepared as a substitution for the sin of the world. So question, Christian, why were you fearfully and wonderfully made? And don't give me that reformed Sunday school answer of for the glory of God. That is ultimately true, yes. But for many purposes, and you're fulfilling those purposes based upon your physical capacity, which is largely determined by the constitution of your physical body, right? But according to Hebrews 4, why did the Father so fearfully and wonderfully make the incarnate Son in Mary's womb? While well, for the same reason, Passover lambs were so meticulously chosen and carefully poured over to make sure that they did not have any defect. Because that which was slaughtered for God, for the people, had to be the best. But these lambs, they were only symbols, efficacious to placate the temporal wrath of God. That little lamb set to grow in Mary's womb was crafted in the first place to be broken, to be destroyed for you and for me. Why all of the care? Why all the divine genius given to this endeavor? Carried out so carefully as to preserve all that man is and all that God is while not commingling and thus destroying the one or the other. So that the father could have a sacrifice worthy of pouring out his wrath upon so that you could have a savior capable of satisfying his wrath for you. What child is this? Well, he is, per the Bibles that you carried with you to church this Christmas Eve, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Lord of glory and the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah, the Almighty, author of life, arm of the Lord, advocate, amen, last Adam and Alpha, 
Omega, an offspring of the woman. Shiloh, servant, son of David, son, S-U-N, of righteousness, commander of the Lord's armies, Lord of hosts, faithful and true, the founder and the source of our salvation, the I Am, the Word and the Way, the Lord of glory and the life, the true one and the truth and our teacher, King of kings, Lord of lords, head of the church who washed the feet of his disciples, first cause, creator, counselor, and chosen one, wonderful, wise, and wisdom itself, everlasting father and our elder brother, judge, lawgiver, and lawkeeper, bridegroom and the breaker of Micah 2.13, savior, shepherd, son of Mary, Messiah, messenger, the root and the branch of David, the morning star and the mediator, God's firstborn and his final revelation, our high priest and our helper, our cornerstone and our Christ. He is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. Merry Christmas, Christian, and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder that you took your son and made him man. Oh Lord, it defies our ability to understand. Lord Jesus, your wisdom, your power, and your willingness to lay aside the full use of said power, to condescend to become one of us, and then to condescend much lower than that, to be slaughtered like the worst of us. Heavenly Father, I pray that your people would ponder and treasure all these things in their hearts as Mary did in hers. And I pray that you would give them all a very Merry Christmas. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.